Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So many white guys. So many. So many white guys. So white. How much whiteness? Welcome to So Many White Guys, brought to you by WYC Studios. You know the damn drill. I'm your host, Phoebe Lynn Robinson, and the studio over there is the only producer I'll ever need, Miss Joanna Salataroff. Hi. Hi. Thrilled to be here, as always. And you know what I'm even more thrilled for? What? This interview with Bass and Muses. So good. Oh my gosh. You know what? It's really stressful to talk to someone so intelligent and so dreamy. It was like scary, like literally scary. Well, you didn't sound scared. Thank you. You sounded very polished and professional. Oh, thank you. But before we get into this interview with Mr. Youssef, what's going on with you today, Joni Mitch? I want to check in with you because I feel like this show's all about our guests and then sometimes my bullshit. I want to show you some love. So what's the haps, girl? Well, I'm just doing some summer planning. (gasps) Ooh. Okay, goals for the summer. First of all, I want to go to the beach as much as possible. Yes. I love the beach. Love it. Second of all... Mm -hmm. I want to check out a nude beach. Whoa! Let's check it out. Wait, so you're going to be topless and bottomless on the beach? I'll probably feel really brave and then end up doing something from, like, a funny sitcom where I, like, have two branches covering me. (laughs) I feel like I'll, like, get really hyped about it, and then when the time comes, I'll get nervous and, like, back off of it and, like, hide behind a hot dog cart. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever been topless in, like, an outdoor setting? Because I have. Let's see. Topless in an outdoor setting. Mm -hmm. I've been, like, topless at a pool party where everyone else was topless. Yeah, man. It's, like, fun and freeing, and you feel like you're back with Nate. There's, like, a bird flying (laughs) around you. Yeah, but I think think you would actually like it, and I think you you will have a lot of fun being topless at the beach. Oh, cool. But I don't know if I could do bottomless. That feels so scary. I mean... I'm a big proponent of skinny dipping. I just always think about the water going up my chocha. And I'm like, I don't know about that. But like, I feel like a bathing suit's not going to stop that. Oh, true. Like whenever. (laughs) Did I just like blow your mind? Yeah. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I've had so much water in my regime. (laughs) It's like a fucking super soaker. And what am I? What am I worried about? (laughs) Nerf, baby. Can they sponsor us? Because that's sick reference to their brand totally i'll be like excuse me nerf <laughs> hello is this nerf <laughs> nerf headquarters this is joanna salatara producer of so many white guys my host recently referred to herself as a super soaker and uh market that you might want to corner what do you say jones my name and deals are my game Okay, so we're both going to beach it up. We're both going to get naked. This is a great summer. Oh, my God. Yes. Hey, 
peeps, sorry. I don't, sorry to cut you short, but. What? I, We're having fun. Well, I just got an email from the front desk and. Okay. They said Alana's here and they said that she wants to apologize for something. You know what? Her apologies have been on point. I love this hoe. Send her in. Phoebe, I, uh, you know, I was kind of a tough producer last year, a tough executive producer. Yeah. I realized, especially in light of the election, that I had been a terrible white person. And I want to start right here at So Many White Guys by apologizing on behalf of white people for certain things. Like today, I want to apologize to you for taking your butts. Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you. It's crazy. It's so crazy because I grew up, white women didn't have butts. They did not. And it was like hot to have a flat, little saggy ass. Like Brooke Shields? No butt. No butt. And we had all the butt. And we knew that having a butt was great, but it was our secret. Right. And white women, it was like, love their no butts because it reminds us of children. But now we are recognizing and acknowledging that a big, juicy booty is amazing. obviously superior. Yeah. Obviously superior. Crazy white shit. women didn't do squats until like fall of 2013. Yes. We're really obviously so late on the game, lamely late on the game. And so I'm so sorry, Phoebe. And uh, we're working on it. <sighs> Thank you so much. Appreciating your patience. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Myself. Joan, you have a great butt. Thank you. You do too, Phoebe. Thanks, Bill. But. So, welcome back to So Many White Guys. That sounded great. Thanks, Bill. Y'all, today we have a special guest in the building. Is it Elvis? Elvis has been dead for several decades. Is it Jake Gyllenhaal? No, it's neither of those people. And stop interrupting me with these like fantasy guests who wouldn't say yes to us. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. It's okay. Go ahead. All right. So you did correctly identify that it is a dude. The person we have today is an actual hero. Like this isn't like some like BS where it's like, oh, this person like saved me a seat at Chipotle. What a hero. Like this is a legitimate hero. His name is Bassem Youssef and he's the host of the show, The Democracy Handbook, a new political satire on fusion. It is incredible. It's so smart and eye-opening. I'm obsessed with it. I binge watched all the episodes and so should you. And now he's got his fusion show and a new book out called Revolution for Dummies. So if you don't know much about this amazing gentleman, you might have heard something like, oh, the Egyptian John Stewart. That's who they were talking about because he's absolutely brilliant. But yeah, okay, all right, he's talented, he's amazing, he's smart, blah, blah, blah. He's also, he looks like a Disney prince. It's a lot. It was very scary to, like, think about talking to someone so beautiful, but I got through it. I think I deserve, like, an award of some kind for it. What do you think, Joni? Yeah, I think you should get a 
Peabody Award. Right? Totally. I mean, to have a sustained conversation with an extremely attractive person and keep it on topic, it was really like an achievement for everyone. Hard hitting. Wow. Mm. Okay, here's the deal. We got off track. Let's get back on track. Okay, so before comedy, he was a doctor in Cairo. And in 2011, when the Egyptian revolution happened, he was helping injured protesters. And after that, Bassem got political and he started his own YouTube series, which made him a star. Let's do this. Locked and loaded. Bam, bam, bam. Bassem, thank you so much for coming on to So Many White Guys. I am a massive fan of yours. I think you're so talented and so what we need right now because everything is feeling insanely crazy. I don't know how you're feeling. Like, what's your temperature of the state of America right now? Well, well first of all, thank you so much for mm-hmm. those nice words. I think we can just finish the interview right now. We can conclude it. <laughs> I mean, because there is nothing else that could be said that could be nicer than this. So, I mean, I'm good. I'm good for today. Thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, see you on the next podcast. <laughs> no, come back. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, well, uh, my, it's kind of like... Um, It sounds very familiar. Everything that's happening right now, I can easily relate to of what I have seen in the Middle East. Um, I always say that if Trump ever runs in the Middle East in an election, he will be um, labeled as a hippie liberal, a tree hugger (laughs) at best. Uh, I think he needs a lot to learn about how to be a real dictator. And um, it's a a very slow process for him. Um, Where I come from, uh, it just comes naturally to dictators back home, the demagoguery, the lying, the uh, alternative facts. It's just like part of their narrative. And uh, nobody even is surprised anymore back home. So it's it's kind of nice to experience this again. And people get so astonished every time he speaks. Uh, so it's, it's a new thing. It's kind of like I'm reliving the experience again here. Yeah. Um, now, before we, we dive further in this conversation, I just want to kind of back up for some of the listeners just in case they're not super familiar with you. So back in 2011, before you got into politics and everything, you were a heart surgeon living in Cairo. Yes, I was. Uh, for 19 years, I was a medical student and then I became a, a heart surgeon. And I was waiting for uh, my um, fellowship to start in Cleveland. Uh, oh, from Cleveland. Uh, yes. So I will only say nice things about Cleveland. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and then when, when the revolution happened in 2011, I started to do this uh, YouTube videos satirizing the media and how they changed the facts and how they fooled the public, brainwashed them. And in less than two months, I got my first TV deal. And in less than a year, I had a live audience with an estimated 30 to 40 million viewers on each episode on television. And it was quite a ride. And then uh, it seems that I was pissing off whatever regime comes to power, whether that was an Islamic regime or a military regime. And I ended up being persecuted by uh, the system and kind of had to escape from the country to start like a whole new chapter in my life in the United States. So that's uh, in a nutshell what happened. Just very casually in a nutshell. No biggie. That's it. <laughs> yes. And and I didn't even think that I would leave medicine to go into that. I was doing these episodes on the weekend while I was having hospital shifts in the rest of the week. And I never thought that I would actually make the switch. I mean, I was so scared to leave 
my profession that I, for a whole a year and a half I continued being a working doctor while I did my show. And then, you know, I just took the decision that this is my calling and this is what I want to do. Yeah. So before you never, ever thought about political satire or comedy as being a part of your life. I mean, I was always a fan of John Stewart, but mm-hmm. like there's so many fans of John Stewart and Colbert, but they would never think of actually taking this as a career. And uh, when that happened, it was just fantasy. It was so surreal. And I, and I, and I jumped at it. I mean, not jump, basically. It took me a year to jump at it, but (laughs) this is how it started. Yeah, so let's kind of remind people about the Egyptian revolution because it happened, the uprising lasted for 18 days, which I wonder, were you kind of shocked at how quickly everything happened or did it seem like it took the appropriate amount of time for this kind of uprising to happen? It was just too perfect to be true. It's too good to be true. It, I mean, now looking back back at it, you cannot really have a movement that uh, continues for 18 days that can throw a deep state that's been there for more than six decades. Looking back, I think we were uh, overjoyed and, and, and we were in denial, basically, mm-hmm. that this would happen. I think if you don't have the right tools at hand, you, protesting doesn't go anywhere. And I even mm. even when I go and see the wonderful protests here in the United States, you had millions of people taking the streets, like, you know, in the Women's March mm-hmm. and everything. But like, what will be next? Yes, there are sometimes they could pressure uh, private businesses to distance themselves from the administration. But what can they do in order to create a, a real movement to make changes? Because you can protest during the weekend and go back home. Mm-hmm. And nothing else will happen. Yeah, it's because it makes me think, you know, automatically I'm going to jump back and think to the civil rights movement. And I think a lot of times when there are successful movements like that, what usually helps is there's like a a force that like everyone can get behind. I, and I agree with you. I think the protesting is amazing, especially when the, the immigration ban was trying to happen. Like everyone came out in full force. It was uh, incredible to see at JFK and LAX, but there doesn't seem to be like a particular leader. Yes. Especially like I see that many liberals, uh, liberals are basically disfranchised by their own democratic establishment. I mean, they have kind of some beef with the Democratic uh, Party. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the Democratic Party can actually uh, pick itself up from what happened from the last elections. I mean, I love, I've been always been a fan of Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even he was fought within his own establishment. I don't know where the leader can come from. And do you actually need a leader or a movement, mm-hmm. a well-organized movement? I mean, the one thing I respect about right-wing people anywhere in the world, not just uh, Republicans, but uh, right-wing military regimes, right-wing religious regime, is that they stick together no matter what. They know they their leaders could be jerks and, and stupid, whatever, but they stick together for an agenda and they push it, they play dirty. The liberals are basically more on like, uh, ah, it, I have to be sold in a hundred percent to be on this. Mm, you know, it's mm-hmm, uh, yeah, and and and, and it is it's a problem in the whole world. It's not just like in the states. It's just like everywhere. So I don't know if this will will materialize into something bigger. Okay, so can you walk us through the decision and the process to to leave Egypt and come to the states? What happened? 
So um, after my show was um, stopped, I was facing a lot of harassment from the regime. Uh, there were a lot of like, uh, quote unquote, fake lawsuits. And when I say fake, it means that there are people who are pushed by the regime in order to make my life uh, much harder. And there was a lawsuit between me and the uh, TV station which canceled my show. It was an arbitration case. And uh, we thought, you know, there, there's nothing to it because they are the ones who canceled the show. And uh, I woke up one morning and I found out that they, I was slammed by a fine for 100 million pounds, which is at that time almost like 16 or 17 million dollars. Wow. And this was the biggest in history of media or arbitration in general in the Middle East. And I, they knew that I, that I don't have that kind of money. And I know that this was a preparation for them to either put me in jail or put me on a no-fly uh, list. So uh, in two hours, I just put everything that I have in a couple of bags and I left the country. And this is how I left the country. Damn. Yes. I will never complain about anything again. Well, you should. You should. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, you should complain about everything. So in order not to reach this point that I had or this kind of events that I had in Egypt. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> Thank <Yes>. you. <laughs> I want to switch gears and kind of, I want to get to know like you pre- the success and the fame that came from the B plus show and everything that happened with your career. So what was your, your, um, your childhood like? Were you always kind of like active in your community? Where, what kind of kid were you? I was a typical kid for a, a conservative middle class family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was good at school. I uh, played sports. Uh, I was not active in any ways politically because in Egypt, when you live all your life under the same exact president, mm-hmm. your political life is pretty much stagnant. We were not basically uh, interested in politics other than have like a continuous scorn for what's happening in politics. But we always uh, were under the impression that nothing will change. Uh, nothing really changed for us until 2011 when the revolution happened. So mm-hmm. as a kid, I was just a regular kid who would uh, study like a nerd and uh, work hard in college and school and play as hard as possible in sports. This is this is me. And of course, dance on the side. But that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I never did anything like politically active. I kind of like I had this belief that like there's nothing really would make any difference because of, as, as I said, the political stagnation. Mm-hmm. And then 2011 came and everything just changed because of um, a handful of uh, YouTube videos. Yeah. And then you got the show and then the government took objection to it. And, you know, you were also getting threats. Like, how did you how did you manage that? So basically, I think my 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 wife got cheated in that marriage because she said, like, hey, I married a doctor who dances tango. Now you are a celebrity that you're never at home. So (laughs) (laughs) No, she always worried. But. It just like came with the job. And um, what was more difficult is actually trying to make comedy Mm -hmm. while you've been persecuted by the government on almost daily basis. It is like when you have lawsuits like being thrown at you, when you have your, the signal for my show was jammed twice. Mm -hmm. When people are like chasing you down in the media and the state run media 
and uh, basically distorting your image on the public, calling you an infidel if it was an Islamic regime or a traitor if it was a military regime. Uh, they would uh, come up with stories that I was recruited by the CIA through John Stewart, who trained me on the art of political satire in order to bring down the government. And this was written in actual articles in black and white in wow. government-run media. That was the difficulty dealing with this while trying to do comedy. That's amazing. And so I know, you know, eventually in 2013, you were arrested and interrogated. Would you do you mind talking a little bit about what that experience was like and how that informed you in any way? Yeah, so under the Islamic regime, there was a warrant for my arrest uh, for the general prosecutor. And uh, I went willingly there because I didn't want them to come and arrest me, put handcuffs in my hands and stuff. So I went with my team and it was one of the most surreal experiences because for six hours I was interrogated about my jokes. Mm. But what did you mean by this joke? What did you mean by that joke? Which is hilarious in itself. Uh, I mean... There were people who were from the office of the general prosecutor who were fans from the show, and they were laughing with me as I would answer the questions. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and there were like police officers who were supposed to hand me in were taking pictures of me as I went into the room. It was it was one of the most surreal, weird experiences ever. And um, at a certain point, they said, we will uh, play your episodes on this computer, so we would ask you about what you have said in the show. And I said, fine. And then they had all of these CDs with my episodes, and they couldn't work it on the computer because the computer was like a Windows 95 obsolete <laughs> machine. <laughs> and here I am for 20 minutes waiting for them to play it, and then I find myself getting up and trying to help them to operate the videos, the <laughs> evidence against me. And I'm trying to say, do you guys have VLC? Is it quick player? I mean, what do you, <laughs> did you download any porn on this? Because it seems to be too sticky. And it, it was, uh, it, it was hilarious. It just, uh, and halfway through the interrogation, I said, like, wait, all they're doing right now is basically asking me about their jokes. And the worst thing that you can do to a satirist, if somebody is asking you about, like, why is this joke funny? So maybe that was kind of like an underhanded attempt to basically make me lose faith in my humor because you can't really explain to them <laughs> why is this joke funny. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, I said like, hey, I didn't mean anything bad about with that. I said like, why are the people laughing? It's like, I don't know. Go ask them. And my lawyer said like, cool down. <laughs> you don't want to piss them off. <laughs> And so now let's get to your show on Fusion, Democracy Handbook. It's great. You you spend your time traveling across the United States where you like seek out different examples of like how democracy is like really doing its best. And one of the segments that stood out the most to me was uh, I forget the name of the guy, but it was at that gun store with the Muslim free zone stickers oh, yes. and the targets. I declared Florida Gun Supply a Muslim-free zone as a direct response to political correctness. I'm Andy with Florida Gun Supply, and if you want to make your home safe from ISIS, all you need is one of our Muslim-free zone signs. I was cringing watching it, and uh, you were such a good sport in that clip. But I was wondering if you are interacting with someone. I know the camera's on you, and this is for a bit, and this is to expose someone's ignorance. But when, you know, he was being definitely offensive towards Muslims throughout the entire thing. So I was wondering how, 
how you were able to maintain your composure and process someone saying these horrible things to you, but you know you couldn't break because you it, it's bigger than your personal feelings. The thing is, I was I was not offended. I was mm. basically intrigued by his logic. For example, I mean, one of the things that he say as proof as why Muslims are inferior to others is that um, uh, historically and biblically, uh, Muslims are the descendants of slaves. So he's not just like Islamophobic, he is racist. And um, it was an interesting interview. Um, I've, it's always been interesting for me to discover and explore this kind of hate that is blinded by either uh, religious narratives or political narratives. For me, it is very important to expose more and more of that kind of narrative and, and, and line of thought. And uh, it, I think at the end of the day, it made great TV for me. It was very interesting to find people who would, in today's time and age, would look at other humans and label them with whatever religion or orientation and despise them and, 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 and direct their hate towards them. And this is why, for example, when you... Um, mentioned in the beginning about those amazing protests uh, in airports about like uh, Jews, Christians, um, seculars, atheists, leftists, liberals uh, uh, standing up uh, to defend Muslims, not because they love Muslims or Islam, it's because Mm -hmm. they were standing up for human values. I speak to my audience back home and I say like, stop with the hypocrisy told those religious leaders to shut their mouth because they are spreading hate because none of them will ever lead a movement to defend the rights of minorities in our own countries. Hate is a universal, hate and racism and xenophobia and, and are, are like universal uh, movements right now and it's gaining traction. And uh, it is it is very interesting to see how similar they are. You just need to yeah. change the language and the target audience and you have the same thing exactly. So how do you feel, to me, your work is always, what I love about it is that even though it's making you laugh, it's also making you think and feel. So how do you go about, because as much as things change, a lot of things stay the same and we're still dealing with Islamophobia, racism, sexism, homophobia, things that we've been dealing with for decades and decades and decades. So do you ever feel like I'm highlighting this particular issue, that particular issue and pointing out these facts and it seems like nothing's really shifting in the way or do you not place that kind of importance on your work? Well, for my work back in Egypt, maybe we didn't really Mm -hmm. change the bigger picture because at the end of the day, you know, the mm-hmm. most powerful took over at the end. But what we have done in the past four or five years, what happened actually in the Middle East in the four, five, past four or five years, is they're like now a younger generation who look at that kind of work and they think and they think again and they think outside of the designated boxes that were created by those military and religious authorities for years and decades. And it's slowly eating into their authority, slowly eating into their fake respect that they want to attain against the younger generation. They are rethinking the kind of inheritance that they had of um, racism and hate and uh, a rigid religious and fake nationalistic thinking. It is a very slow process, but it's happening. Now on Facebook and social media, you would never think that people would openly speak about what they think now about religion or about the fake pillars of nationalism. It's um, These were things that were considered taboos. 
And there's still a, of course, there's still pushback from the old ways of thinking. But this was, this is how I would describe how the needle has moved. And it, in the last five years, I think it moved a lot. So you've been traveling America doing Democracy Handbook. And I'm wondering, from all the encounters you've had with various people from various backgrounds, politically and socially, what do you think is probably the biggest issue that the U.S. is facing right now? Well, I, I think there's a, there's a huge divide right now. And mm-hmm. I think people are living in their own echo chambers. And it's pretty much resonates what exactly that I've seen in the Middle East. Um, people don't want to hear facts anymore. They mm-hmm. only want to hear things that would reinforce their own opinion. They, they would rather uh, accept uh, half-truth, knowing that they are half-truth, than actually like, accept facts. And it is not different in any ways from what I have seen back in, in the Middle East. It's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I did with Democracy Handbook is that I interviewed a bunch of Arab Christians who are Catholic, evangelical Christians, half-Jewish, half-Christians. And some of them were had very fair skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. And just because of the country that they came from, or their names, they were persecuted. They were driven off planes. They were they had their businesses being persecuted by uh, security uh, entities here. Mm. There are Muslims here who are called Muhammad and Ahmed and Mahmoud, who are who do not even pray or fast Ramadan. They are Muslims by name, uh, by culture, but they do not practice. I do not go onto this by being a Muslim. I'm doing this by being a minority with a certain skin tone, name, and accent that I will always be locked into it. Because when xenophobia or racism comes, it doesn't ask for your ID card or Mm -hmm. investigate how many times do you pray or not pray a day. When it comes to you, it will be detrimental to anybody. This kind of fear from the other it will disturb everybody's life, not just Muslims. I mean, my daughter has a perfect American accent because she's been raised here. She's five. And because of she's watching Nickelodeon Junior every single day, all the time, she has an accent that is totally inseparable from any kid who's been raised here with an American accent. But her skin tone, her hair, her color, her name will all make her subject to these kind of threats and this kind of discrimination. Mm -hmm. It is very dangerous. And I don't do this because I am a Muslim, because I am just different. I I look different. I sound different. My name is different. And I have to deal with it if this becomes worse. You understand what I mean? It's just Mm -hmm. like, how come you're telling me that this is a country over individualism while you just easier for you to uh, group people into easily recognizable, stereotypical uh, patterns? Uh, whether this pattern was a black person or a Mexican or Hispanic or a Muslim. And I have to say, and I know that this might anger some of my friends, there are some of these videos that I'm really uh, sick and tired of them. You know, all of these uh, videos where I have like, hi, I'm a Muslim, I'm a... I'm a dentist, I'm a poet, I'm a singer, mm. I'm a comedian, I'm a normal person who yeah. does not pose any threat to you. And it, it's been done to Mexicans, it's done to Hispanics, it's done to black people. And it just like, and this is pathetic that we actually have to come up 
and tell people that we are not the same and and we are no threat to you guys. We are we are not the Muslims that are going to blow themselves up. Yeah, I completely agree with you, and I do I do understand why those videos are made where it's like, hi, I'm this and that, I'm cool, and there is this notion of respectability politics in this country for sure, and I and I think it is done with the intention of I know not to like I'm safe, but the intention of like I guess I do have to explain that I am also a black person. Yes. And yeah. I'm not going to rob you. And like I know like to you and I that sounds ridiculous as this needs to be said in twenty seventeen. But I think living in a country where the playing field is not level for people like you and me and we will be considered suspicious more quickly than maybe our white counterparts. I do understand the reason why those videos exist. I hope that they will someday stop existing, but I think they only exist in tandem with, you know, racism and Islamophobia. So it's it's hard. I totally totally understand Mm -hmm. those videos and I respect the people who are behind them. But like I on the side have to say, if you guys need these videos to, how many more videos do I need to to make for you to understand, to right. see, you know, yeah. because it's not just like one or two. It's like every single day with every single minority. It's mm-hmm. just like, hey, hello, I'm Asian and I can drive. It's just, like, come on, <laughs> Yeah, come yeah, on. I know. Um, I want to mm. go back to something you said earlier, which is, which I really love because my dad, I was talking to my dad earlier just about politics, I think like last year when everything was getting crazy here. And he was like, at the end of the day, people just want to be lied to. And that's something that you you said, too, which I and he was like, even if the person knows what they're being told is a lie, they rather hear that than something else. And so I'm I'm wondering, because you you're in the world of political satire, and you have traveled a country and talked to many different people. Why do you think that people want to be lied to and they hold on to that lie more than they they would the truth? Because it's easier for for you to um, channel your anger or frustration towards a certain group of people without having to deal with the complexities of this these humans. Mm-hmm. So uh, this has been always used by even regimes in the Middle East. When the uh, economy and education and health care is failing, it will be much easier to channel this anger and frustration to an outside force. So they will always tell them the West is conspiring against us. Israel is conspiring against us. America is conspiring against us. I always say that even if the West was not there, they would create the West in order to channel the anger of the people towards them. For people... Here in the States, what I've seen is that it will be much easier for them to channel their anger and frustration of losing their jobs, of having a, a lower level of education or health care or standard of living in general on other people. And this is why dictators and religious and military regimes and demagogic people, they, are, they hate satire because when you make fun of those people... You are not afraid anymore. Hate mm-hmm. makes you afraid and makes you pretty much uh, all wired up. But satire is is basically rejected by these people. That's why they're very thin-skinned when they get to satire and humor. Because if you are making fun of them, you're not afraid anymore. You can't be smiling and laughing and afraid at the same time. Mm-hmm. So for them, satire is one of their first 
target to bring down. And when Trump is tweeting about SNL or Alec Baldwin, it, it is pretty much very familiar for me because they are thin-skinned. They see that satire and humor undermine their authority. And um, it kind of takes away from people's fear and uh, and the fake respect that they have for them. Oh, God. You're... Bossom, you're so amazing. Oh, I'm not no, doing, you're I'm such doing. inspiration. Mm-hmm. I, I really respect your work, and I, I know we got to get out of here really quickly, but I do want to talk about a book that you have coming out, Revolution for Dummies. So yes. can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the book, uh, I mean, uh, I outline what happened to me in the last few years since I started my show until I got kicked out of the country and came here. It doesn't just tell my story. It kind of gives an American reader who have absolutely no idea what the Middle East is. And what is the thing with Sunni and Shia? And what is the, and why are Arabs are angry at each other or angry at the West or America? It's like the name. It's like, like a, a dummies uh, for dummies series. Mm-hmm. I, I just like take them step by step explain to them everything from what the hell is Sharia and uh, why Islamists do what they do in Islamic countries. It's kind of like I explain to them in a way in, in as, as simple as possible. And I tell them, but as a disclaimer, this is not an objective or comprehensive book. If you want an objective, comprehensive book, go buy one of those books that are sold by the uh, uh, DC think tanks and nobody reads. <laughs> but you can come and read my book, which is uh, a kind of a, a lightweight, easier way to follow what's happening in the Middle East. And I do that through the story of my uh, of my show and how how I had all of that happening to me in, the, in just uh, less than four years. Well... I am so happy for you. I really think that your voice is needed in these times. So I really am so grateful that you're making the art that you're making and you're making people think, you're making people feel, and you're making people talk to each other. And I really, really appreciate that. Um, So thank you so much for all that you do and all that you're going to continue to do in the future. You too. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. I'm sad. Why? Because Bassam is like gorgeous. He's smart. He's talented. He's well read. He's like the perfect person. And like how many perfect guys are there out there who are like literally affecting change in the world using their their good looks and their knowledge for good? You know, I mean, Bono. Uh, you just try to make me happy, girl. <laughs> so there's at least two. That's true. Okay, so we just need more people to use all their powers for good, and we'll be fine. Great. I'm totally on board. Could not agree with you more. Should we wrap up the credits? Joan, I like just want to hang out. I know. Let's do the credits. What if we, like, just hung out for a little bit? Okay, let's hang out for a little bit. Okay. After the credits. Oh, I see what you did there. Are you taking me to Westville? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'll put it on the corporate card. (laughs) So Many White Guys team includes Rachel Neal, Jana Salataroff, Jim Poyan, Paula Schumann, Isaac Jones, Matt Boynton, Jamie Bloom, and Joe Floyd. Our theme song was written by Alex Overington and sung by a bunch of white dudes. 
Check out exclusive audio from today's interview with Bassem Youssef on the WNYC Studios Twitter page. And don't forget, you can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dope Queen Phoebes. You guys have been fantastic. Love you forever. Waikiki. You're you're such a treat. I can't even handle it. Um, are we all ready to go, guys? Yep, I've got my role going. When you guys are ready, you may begin. Awesome, great. Are we going to keep in that uh, sweet bathroom convo that I started before? Just kidding. Um, we, we cannot put it in international and national airwaves now. <laughs>